Hi, this is Pastor Philip Lin, and I'm the Senior Pastor of Skyline SIB. Welcome to the Skyline SIB podcast. We're so glad that you're taking time to tune in. Whatever you may be going through, God is with you, and we hope that this message will encourage and inspire you to draw closer to Him. Enjoy the message. I have lots of love to give. Why? Because I am greatly loved, as are all of you. Amen? Amen. Why don't we just give the creative team a big hand, the guys in the front and the back. Thank you so much. We love you. We honor you. Thank you so much for serving us week in and week out. And so uh, today, it's so good to be back and to be starting off a new series called The Kingdom of God. Somebody say, wow. Wow. So uh, today we're going to kick this off and the title, the specific title for today's sermon is called The Coming King. You know, most people, when they talk about the kingdom of God, they tend to think that it came with Jesus, Uh, probably because the specific phrase kingdom of God isn't really mentioned or alluded to that much in the Old Testament. But the truth is that the kingdom of God has existed from the very start. And that is what we're going to be looking at today, tracing the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. I will say today that uh, there is a lot of scripture today to dive into. Somebody say amen. I'm glad you are excited. And so if that is, you know, you like taking notes, uh, this is, you know, you're going to be... We're not going to be able to go through the details of all the scriptures, so take down the notes, or if you're quick with your phone, then you can take a screenshot, uh, because this is really the kind of thing that you need to go back and meditate and ruminate and think about, okay? So, perhaps today, when we say we're going to look at the Old Testament to trace the kingdom of God and to talk about the coming king, who we all know as Jesus, perhaps you're wondering... Why, Pastor Rich, why do we need to bother with looking through the Old Testament for traces of Jesus when we already have Jesus? We already acknowledge him as our king. Well, I want to share with you about a study that was done uh, in the States in the summer of 2011. Uh, And this is the New York Times article that talks about this study. Uh, So basically, this study uh, concluded by saying that The most important thing that you can do for your family is to develop a strong family narrative. Now, this study, what it did was two researchers, they decided to test the hypothesis that children who know a lot about their families tend to do better when they are facing challenges. And so the researchers tested Uh, this hypothesis by asking children to answer 20 questions. And, you know, examples of these 20 questions were things like, do you know where your your grandparents grew up? They asked questions like, do you know where your mom and dad went to high school? Uh, They asked questions, do you know how your parents met? And, you know, also questions like, do you know the story of your birth? And so they compiled all these responses from, the stu- from these children, also together with looking at dinner table conversations that were recorded. And they came to the conclusion that the more that children know about their family's history, the stronger their sense of control over their lives in the sense that they had higher self-esteem and the more they believed that their families functioned. Two months after this study was conducted, something happened. What happened? It was 
And although the families that had been studied had not been directly, you know, affected by all the events, all the children had experienced the same national trauma at the same time. And so the researchers, they knew this was a rare opportunity, so they went back and reassessed the children. And again, they found that those who knew more about their families proved to be more resilient in the sense that they were able to moderate the effects of stress. So why does knowing something as simple as where your grandpa went to school help a child overcome something as small as a scraped knee in the playground or as big as a major terrorist attack? The answer has to do with a child's sense of being part of a larger family. And here's the point. You and I, we are part of a larger family. Amen? It is a family that is more extensive than our own immediate and extended families even. And so it matters today that we know our kingdom story as we navigate through the seas of life. We do not wish it, but all of us at some point will have to reckon with loss, with grief, with disappointment and hurt, with trauma, and maybe even great persecution for our faith. But knowing our kingdom family narrative is not just important, but helpful, encouraging, and empowering as we go through the seasons of life. You see, we are part of God's family, and God's family has a story. And you know what? It is a great story. Amen? So you see, I'm setting you up for what we are going to be diving into today as we come into the scriptures. I'm setting you up so that you know as we get deep and sometimes it gets uncomfortable, sometimes it gets difficult to understand. You understand that this is part of knowing your kingdom family narrative. Is that good? Yeah? Okay, so how might we understand the kingdom of God as through the lens of the Old Testament. You know, I want to propose a framework that will take us through seeing the kingdom of God right at the beginning through the Old Testament. And I'm going to stop just uh, before the New Testament. But I say this to tell us that there is no discontinuation between the two, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are one big story, the story about God's redemptive work among his people. And I want us to start with this understanding based on this premise that our God does not make mistakes. Our God does not make mistakes. All of history is crafted and engineered based on the sovereignty of God. And because God is sovereign overall, we find that there is the kingdom of God right there at the beginning even at creation. So what does the Old Testament have to say about the kingdom of God? Let's look at some, actually know a lot of scriptures this morning, okay? I'm going to start us off with this thought. God is king over all creation. This is one of the first things that we get when we look at the Old Testament. We see quite clearly, quite plainly that God is king over over all creation. Now, where do we see this? We can start in places like the Psalms. Psalms 10 verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Or how about 
verses like 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 20, verse 6. This is King Jehoshaphat confessing this. Oh Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Or consider King Hezekiah's exaltation in Isaiah 37, verse 16. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And so there are so many verses that will point us to this truth, that God is a sovereign ruler of the universe. But where did it all begin? It began in the garden. Somebody say garden. It began in the garden. And so Genesis chapters 1 to 2 tell us the creation story. God creates the heavens and the earth, the evening and the morning, the sea, the sky, the land, all kinds of living creatures. And then he calls it what? He calls it good. And then he creates Adam and Eve. And then he called everything that he had made very good. People, you know your Bible. I'm so proud of you. Well done. Now, it is true that God is alone, is the ultimate king over all creation. But human kings have a role to play in his kingdom. And right from the beginning, we see that God built human kingship into creation itself. You see, when Adam and Eve, they were commissioned by God to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. At the heart of this commission is really kingship. Adam and Eve are to rule the whole world in submission to God, the one true king over all. And Adam and Eve, what are they to do? They are to spread God's dominion outside the boundaries of the ordered Garden of Eden. So it's not just about the Garden of Eden, but it says to fill the earth and subdue it to have dominion. And so in a sense, God reigns over his creation in and through Adam. But what happens? They fail. They fail at this assignment. They do not take dominion over the earth. And instead, they rebel against God. But the good news is that God doesn't abandon his intention to rule over earth through a human king. So what's the second thing that the Old Testament teaches us about the kingdom of God and Jesus, the coming king? It is this. The Old Testament portrays God as king over Israel in a special way. So you see, several generations later after Adam, we will meet Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, God will show us a renewed commitment on God's part to rule the entire world. How? Through his chosen means. Not simply through a single man, which was Adam, but now through kings. This is what it says in Genesis 17 verse 6. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And so God promises to what? To bless Abram abundantly and through his descendants to make him into a great nation that God will bless for themselves. No, so that they can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. 
And what else does God do in Genesis 12? God renews this dominion mandate, which was originally given to Adam. Now he renews it with Abram, who is now called Abraham. And through its kings, Israel is to be a blessing to all the nations as God's reign extends throughout the earth. So yes, Israel is blessed, but they have a responsibility to fulfill. They are to be a blessing to all nations, not just in the Jewish context, but it says all nations. Somebody say all nations. So Israel is given a task to what? To spread the glory of God to every corner of the planet. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the glory of the Lord, will, for, the, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If we look in Isaiah 42, 49, and 60, it's put this way. Israel is meant to be a light to the Gentiles. Micah 4.2 will say that Israel is meant to be like a bright beacon on top of a mountain to show the nations the way to salvation. Now, Israel does not actually receive an earthly king until the time of Samuel. And Saul is Israel's first king. However, he does not rule according to God's commands. And we see this in 1 Samuel 13, 8 to 15. And eventually in 1 Samuel 15, he is removed from the throne. Saul's removal from the throne then makes way for David to be anointed as king. And in 2 Samuel 7, we see David enter the kingship that culminates in this covenant that God makes with him. And in this covenant, God promises to preserve a kingly line into the future, beginning with King David. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 7 verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is incredibly significant. Why? Because Israel's history is primarily a history of failure. See, their kings failed to rule failed to rule according to God's requirements. Yeah, there are some high points like Josiah and the reforms that he brought about, the call to repentance, the return to worship, the return to the word. But by and large, Israel's kings fail to rule in righteousness. And so, just like how Adam's dominion over the world did not come to pass, they fell. You see, God's promise that Israel would be a blessing to the nations also does not materialize in the Old Testament. Why? Because Israel and Judah will end up in exile. Israel in 722 BC, Judah in 586 BC. Their kingdoms come to a pitiful end. But just as God was not finished with Adam, God is not done with Israel or her kings. And God will still rule over his people and over his world through a Davidic king. Are we good so far? Yeah, I know it's very meaty, very chunky, but wow, this is the word of God. Amen? Okay, now at this point of the story, we ask these questions. How were God's people supposed to make sense of the grave failure of 
is of their kings. How were they supposed to understand the exile? Because it seemed as if God had abandoned his kingdom. And then this is where the prophets come in. So we have seen the kingdom of God at creation. It was always meant to be the kingdom of God. It failed. So then God renews his commitment with Abraham. And again, there is failure. So now we come to see the kingdom of God through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. Here's the third thing that we will pick up from the Old Testament about this kingdom of God. You see, the Old Testament prophets, whether they were before, during, or after the exile, they made it absolutely clear that God would not abandon his intention to rule over his people and his creation through a Davidic king. He makes it quite clear. The prophets will make it clear. But how will he do it? What does God have to do to reverse the failure of Israel to be a light and blessing to the nations? Well, here's the first thing. God will bring about a new exodus. However, this exodus is not just mere deliverance from Israel's earthly enemies. Instead, God will come into, in power to deliver his people, usher in a new creation, and renew his reign over his people. And so Isaiah 40, 10 to 11, speaks of this deliverance this way. Let's read it together. Ready? One, two, go. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. You see, God did not stop being king simply because Israel's earthly kings failed. And Isaiah highlights the necessity of God to perform a dramatic act of salvation and rescue for his people in the future. And how will God do it? Well, we know this because we read it a lot at Christmas. Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, but especially for us today to read and declare verses 6 to 7. So ready? Let's read it. One, to go. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, let's keep going, and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is how God will rescue his people. A child will come. And so if the kingdom of God is to be manifest over the earth and Israel is to be a light to the nations, then it will only come about when God returns to Zion to deliver his sinful people and to equip them to extend his saving reign to the furthest points of the earth. What might this future reality look like? Well, if we look at Jeremiah 
Jeremiah expresses this future reality with a vision of God placing shepherds. Now, shepherds, they were a symbol of God's, of kingship among his people, okay? And so, Jeremiah expresses this vision. God placing shepherds, bringing them out, out of this new exodus from the nations to where they had been driven. If we go to Daniel, the book of Daniel, we'll put it this way. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. You see, God, through a future godly messianic king, he will reign over the whole word, world forever. And so the original dominion mandate in the Garden of Eden will be fulfilled through the dramatic saving work of God. Somebody say amen. But what kind of king would come? We today living in this era, we have the benefit of the word of God. We can read the gospels. We can see what it was like when Jesus walked the earth. But remember at this point in time for the people of the Old Testament, they did not know what to expect. Well, if we look at a few key prophecies today, uh, these will be particularly significant. There are many prophecies, actually, but we'll look at just three today uh, because these are particularly significant for understanding Jesus's ministry. So we start at Zechariah 9.9, which is one of the most loved or most well-known prophecies about Jesus. And this is what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, in ancient times, dignitaries, they would ride donkeys in civil proceedings, uh, civil processions. And a king on a donkey indicated a peaceful mission, not a military conquest. This prophecy about Jesus riding on a donkey just making sure people are paying attention. But this prophecy about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, would be later fulfilled in Matthew 21, verses 1 to 7. What happens there? Jesus instructs two of his disciples to go out to Bethphage, to get a donkey, to bring it to him, and then he will ride it into Jerusalem. As he rides into Jerusalem, the people rejoice. They celebrate him coming because they are expecting a king who is going to deliver them from their oppressors. They're expecting a king, a military-like savior who would come and rescue them. What should they have expected of the coming king? That he would actually come in humility. If we go to Isaiah... Isaiah 52 and 53, they actually prophesy about the coming of a servant of the Lord who shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And yet in a paradox, this exaltation of God's servant will come about through his own suffering. That's Isaiah 53 verses 3 to 5. Let's read it together. Ready? One, two, go. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As we hid at our faces from him, 
He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Amen. Amen. Now we contrast this picture with a picture in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the coming kingly deliverer of God's people seems unlike the suffering servant of Isaiah. Or the savior who comes, the king who comes in humility as pictured in Zechariah. If we consider Daniel 7 verses 13 to 14, let's read it together. Ready? One, two, go. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Wow, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. So how do we reconcile between these two paradoxes? The final saving reign of God ushered in by a suffering servant. And at the same time, a triumphant heavenly deliverer. Which one is it going to be? The truth is that it is both. It is both. Why? Because victory will come about through the suffering of God's king. And this was so difficult for many Jews to accept because they expected a triumphant king without understanding how he would triumph. You take John 6.15, for example, Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. And then he departs to the mountain by himself alone. You see, this is precisely how Jesus understood his own kingly calling. Because he is the heavenly son of man who will come on the clouds to judge the world. But only after he has died for the sins of his people. And this paradoxical reality is a vital theme that you and I, we will often encounter as we continue to understand and wrestle with what the kingdom of God means for us. So, we've looked at the scripture. Tell me, Pastor Rich, what was the point of all of that? Well, I come back to what I said earlier. The first thing is, we should know our kingdom story so that we can build a strong spiritual narrative. I can tell you that you can walk into church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and yet have your life narrative be set by outside world. I say this especially for the younger people. You need to know your kingdom family story so that you can build and start building 
a strong spiritual narrative in your life. There are so many competing voices outside there that if you do not know your kingdom family story, you will not be able to tell which narrative you should live your life according to. Know our kingdom story, church. And together, let's build a strong spiritual narrative in our families and then in our ministries and in the whole church. Amen? Here's a second implication about this, about understanding why you know, we need to come into Old Testament teaching. Well, we need to understand and know Old Testament teaching. Why? Because it gives us the context to be able to make sense of Jesus' teaching and preaching. You see, the Jews that Jesus was preaching to, they knew that God was king. They also knew that God had always been king. What they did not know was this final end time saving reign of God as announced by the prophets was already breaking into their world in Jesus' own person and in his ministry. It's next week when we turn to the Gospels, we'll begin to see what Jesus has to say about the nature of the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? Come back next week. It's really funny. Pastor Philip is preaching next week and we were talking about this series this week and he says to me, yeah, Rach, you know, you are like John the Baptist. You, you go first and pave the way. And I said, I, th- I didn't say, but I thought to myself, gee, thanks, Pastor. You've left me in the wilderness feasting on wild locusts and honey. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? Wild locusts and honey... You know, it's still going to nourish you. It's still going to grow you. It's still going to make you come strong and be resilient in God. Amen. Amen. Okay. So make sure that you're taking notes and you're learning because this is the kind of thing that God, you know, we learn about it here in, you know, we spend two hours at church on a Sunday. You cannot rely on the two hours that you spend at church on a Sunday to grow your faith. I say this with love. Okay. I say this with love. You cannot rely on your experience here on Sunday to grow your faith. We need to grow to be resilient disciples. What that means is often we need to learn how to take charge and be intentional about growing ourselves. And one of the best ways we can do that, hey friend, let's get to know, really know our kingdom family story. What else does it mean for us today? You know what? We live in the best of times. Because there is the iPhone. Amen, Pastor John? Pastor John and I are old iPhone advocates. So, But we live in the best of times, really. You know why? Because we can see the prophecies that have come to pass. We can see and, and, and you know, we know that Jesus' first coming has actually happened. Today, you and I, we are anticipating the second coming, that finale. But in this moment, as we consider prophecies from the Old Testament, for me personally, what what does it do? It does this. Prophecies shape and teach us. And what we can see from this is the truth that we have a God who does what he says he will do. 
we have a God who can be trusted. If he says he's going to ride into town on a donkey, he's going to ride into town in a donkey. If he says he has plans and a future for you, you better bet he has plans and a future for your life. If he says, if we are told that he will be born of a virgin, that he will be wounded for our transgressions, that he will be bruised for our iniquities and he will die for our sins, he will do it and he has done it. God does what he says he will do. So I do not know what promise you are waiting on from God. But this is his track record. All the way from creation to the centuries of time to where we are today. He is the same. And he is a God who can be trusted because he will do what he says he will do. That's for somebody here today. Somebody say amen. What else do we learn from the Old Testament perspective of the kingdom of God? It is this. It is that God will always challenge our mindsets. How will God challenge our mindsets? He will challenge our mindsets to be bigger, to be more expansive, to be more generous. Because you see, from the very beginning, God had intended that his kingdom would extend beyond the Jewish context. For the Jews, you see, they interpreted and they anticipated a kingdom that would be very Jewish, that would emphasize the rule of Israel over other nations. And because they interpreted it this way, they missed the real richness of the kingdom of God. When Jesus bursts onto the scene, they're wondering, why is he eating with sinners? Why is he healing on the Sabbath? They miss it. Because why? They have a narrow interpretation and understanding of what God has in store. Friends, God will always challenge our mindsets. To be fair, if we lived in the Old Testament time, we might have missed the point too, right? Being real, huh? But because we live today, we have seen that truly God goes beyond what the Jewish people could have ever imagined revealed in Jesus. Why? Because we are the recipients of God's generosity. And in the same way, God will challenge our mindsets. Many of us, we are still discovering what the kingdom of God is like. We're still trying to understand what it really means. That's why you need the series in your life. So make sure you keep track and, and learn and study. Because if really we understand the kingdom of God, it should invade every area of our life. It should invade the way that we live. It should impact the way that we choose to lead and disciple our families. It should invade and affect the way we worship, the way we treat the poor, the foreigner, the stranger. And really, this is what we hope for as we start this series. It is that the kingdom of God will invade our lives and overflow out of our lives to bless other people. Because that is what it was from the very beginning. In creation, God doesn't just say tend the garden. He says, fulfill and subdue the entire earth. He says to the kings and the leaders of Israel at that time that you are to be a light, not just for yourselves, but to all the nations of the world. And that is why when the kingdom of God invades our lives, it is not for ourselves, but it is to overflow out of us to bless other people. Theologian J.I. Packer, he puts it this way. The purpose of the church is to make the invisible kingdom 
visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. It is our task, you and I, as the church, to make the invisible kingdom visible. How do we do that? We do that by living our lives in such a way that show the reality of the kingdom of God, whether it's in our jobs, whether it's in our families, whether it is in our schools, whether it is in our bank accounts. Because the only way that the kingdom of God is going to be manifest until Jesus comes again is if you and I, we manifest it in the way that we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. So how do we respond to such a word today? How can we manifest this invisible kingdom in our lives? How can we show this anticipated reality as we live as citizens of the one true king and subjects of the one true king? I'll give you three things in closing because I know you love practical handles in Skyline. (laughs) I love them too. Here's the first thing. We should pursue God. We should pursue him. Israel failed to do this. They did not do as God had commanded. They worship idols. They live selfishly. They failed to love the Lord their God and walk in obedience. And the truth is that all of those things are symptomatic of their ultimate failure, which was that they failed to trust God. How will you pursue God this week? Are there areas in your life where you know you are not trusting God with? He's challenging us today to trust him, to pursue him. Here's the second thing that we can do in response to a word like this is that we can persevere. We should persevere through hardship, even when we are under persecution. And we should persuade others to the same effect. I think of Daniel, held captive in Babylon, living in service to a foreign king, the king that captured him. How he stood strong and committed to God, even when his own faith was challenged. And yet he remained in service to King Nebuchadnezzar and his successors until King Cyrus reigned. Daniel served this line of kings, not his kings, foreign kings of a nation that had taken him captive, served them with loyalty, with his ability, with his competency. What was Daniel doing? Making the invisible kingdom visible. And the third thing that we can do is like the prophets, we can proclaim. What do we proclaim? We proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. Why? So that no one will perish. We've just finished our series on generations belong. We're just all about how we can proclaim the good news to everyone around us. No matter what personality type you think you are, you can. And it is our mandate to do that. What a great way to start this series about the kingdom of God. Knowing that you and I belong to this kingdom family. That God's story is our story. So who will you proclaim? 
the good news of God's kingdom to this week, this month, and this year. Today, as we close, I just want to make an invitation first. If you're here today, maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've heard people talk about him. Your friends talk about him, but you do not know him. You have not acknowledged him as your Lord and as your Savior. Today, there is an invitation to be a part of this grand, great kingdom, family, and story. The Bible tells us, and we sang this earlier, that God knew us before we were formed that he knit us together in our mother's womb. The God who reaches out to you today, who meets you where you are at, is a God who knows you and is a God who can be trusted because his track record proves it. He is a God who will do what he says he will do. And so this morning, all heads bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you've been sitting on the fence, you don't know whether you want to give your life to Jesus or not, friend, I give you this invitation today. He is a generous God. And as you exchange your life for his, as you give your heart to him, he exchanges our small dreams and hopes for things that are so much bigger and full of purpose. Because why? He's a God that can be trusted. He's a generous God. And he's a God who is reaching out to you today. So right now, at the count of three, if that is you today, I ask you to be bold. Put up your hand. No one else will see it, but I will see it. And then we'll pray a prayer together. So right now, if that is you, God is here in this place. One. And he's knocking on the door of your hearts. In a way, he's calling you and inviting you home too. If that is you today, friend, we would love to pray with you. Slip up your hand. Three. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Praise you and worship you, God. Thank you. God, we give you praise and thanks. Why don't we all be upstanding at this time? I just want to pray over us today as the kingdom family of God. What a privilege it is, God, to be part of your family. Why don't we lift our hands to God this morning? Father, we come before you. We thank you so much. Thank you so much, God, for your word. We thank you that as we commit ourselves to, to your word, that we will see you. We will encounter you. And our lives will be changed. 
This morning as we come, oh God, with our hearts, we make a commitment, oh God, to pursue you no matter what the cost. We make a commitment today to make you our priority, that our lives would point towards you, oh God. And for those of us, Father, who are struggling with persevering through hardship, we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and help us, to enable us, to empower us. We ask, oh God, that we have as a right understanding of what it means to be a part of your kingdom, the kingdom of God, and how that is a kingdom that is everlasting and will never, never decay. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in and through our lives. And this week, we ask for boldness as we proclaim the good news of your kingdom, as we proclaim the good news of what you have done. God, we ask that you would enable us empower us oh God by the power of your Holy Spirit God we ask you to fill us afresh this morning we cry out to you God this morning hallelujah come on church let's cry out to God let's cry out let's reach out to God this morning he is a God who can be trusted put your trust in him because he will not fail you we cry out to you oh God Thanks so much for listening. If you need prayer or want to be a part of our family, visit us at SkylineSIB.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at SkylineSIB. Remember, you are highly favored, greatly blessed, and deeply loved. Have a great week.